Marshall, great to talk to, with you. We are here at Camp Kotuk. How about, can you just introduce us, uh, uh, tell us, what do you, what do, you do? Yeah, Jack, I'm the co-head of the Emerging Markets team at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So I'm responsible for a team of about 50 professionals who make investments in both fixed income and equities of emerging market countries. So emerging market countries, it's, it's, you were telling me something recently that just blew my mind that the dominant form, the dominant uh, uh, framework in emerging market investing continues to be very company specific. Oh, I'm going to invest in Alibaba, Fundamentals, or Reliance Industries, but you have a very different approach that uh, t I want to tell us about. Yeah, that's right. So the, the, the first couple academic papers that were published on the source of excess returns for international and emerging market investors were they're published back in 1973 and 74. So 50 years ago, we have 50 years of data uh, that demonstrate that about 80% of excess returns are determined by which country you invest in when you're an emerging markets investor. It doesn't really matter which company which sector, which style, which capitalization you invest in. All of those factors explain kind of the remaining 20%. So uh, the most contemporary examples I can give you is it doesn't really matter how great a stock selector you were amongst the Russian equities. They, they all went to zero. So if you had chosen to ignore your country level, your sovereign level analysis in the case of Russia, uh, it would have been completely de deleterious to your excess return, no matter how good of stock selector you were. And we see that even more consistently across China. Chinese stocks collectively move together. And so uh, getting the China allocation correct is way, way more important than getting the specific stocks correct. Yeah, I know some wonderful companies in China, but the you know, Chinese stock market has been in, in a downtrend for, for a long time. Or uh, what, what makes you impact the, your country asset allocation? In, in the world, let's perhaps stick to equities. What are you looking for what says, oh, let's overweight this country relative to the you know, emerging market index, or let's underweight this. And then I want to get into what, what you're under overweight and why. Well, there's, there, there's several different principles we look at when we're selecting countries to make our fixed income or equity investments. Um, the really exciting ones, I would say, are those countries that are undergoing institutional change, where the rule of law, the soundness of the money supply, the regulatory environment are changing, either for the better or for the worse. And we know that those changes empirically, I've written academic papers on this, those changes empirically relate to excess returns. So if you can identify a country that's going to improve its rule of law during the investment horizon, the discount goes, rate goes down, and the assets outperform, for example. So the first thing we look for is countries that are changing institutionally. The second thing we might look at is countries whose institutions are not appropriately discounted or appropriately understood by the marketplace. This is probably a little more common among frontier and off-index countries, countries like the Republic of Georgia, where the investor base is just not that well-traveled. The inst economic institutions in the Republic of Georgia are very good ranked amongst one of the highest uh, when it comes to economic freedom, but the assets are still remarkably inexpensive, growing very quickly if you look at the equities uh, and their earnings trajectory, but just overlooked. So those would be two of the principal uh, components to our investment process, looking for institutional change, or where the institutions are not appropriately valued by the marketplace. Okay, and uh, I understand that you're overweight a country uh, that is very surprising to people. What is the country that you're most overweight and why? 
So in the equity funds that I manage, we are significantly overweight Greece, right? This is a country's whose weight in the emerging markets index rounds to zero. It has largely been ignored since uh, the crisis that they had uh, nearly 15 years ago. Um, Greece is on the precipice of becoming an investment-grade country. So while the first night of Camp Kotak, we were discussing the the downgrade of the credit rating in the United States. For those of us in the back of the room doing emerging markets, we were whispering about the upgrade that is going to happen in Greece. And so my, how the world changes that a country who nearly brought down the, the Eurozone experiment um, has addressed the imbalances and their fiscal, uh, their fiscal policy, the regulatory environment, and now we have this investment grade upgrade. What will come after that, very likely, will be an upgrade to developed market equity status, something they were also punished with, mm. a downgrade to emerging markets. So you have those two things going on uh, technically, and Greece is very likely to be the second fastest growing economy in Europe next year behind Ireland. And all of this comes about because we have a reformist government that was just reflected with a mandate to shrink the size of government, privatize industry, make the regulatory environment more efficient. What does that do? It attracts capital. It builds consumer and investor confidence. It drives excess uh, economic growth and therefore excess returns as the discount rate drops, as a country's uh, rule of law improves and the investment grade uh, rating uh, in, it, it comes about. So what you're sort of uh, uh, positioning for is a, a re-rating to a, a higher multiple maybe on bonds or stocks. What What is the multiple on Greece now? I mean, how cheap is Greece? and and, you know, things can get cheap, but get even cheaper. Like, wh in what point does cheapness become a catalyst? Yeah. So, I mean, before I share my favorite statistic of the moment, we're positioning for two things in Greece. One is what you described, which is a re-rating of the multiple that more appropriately reflects that it's going to be the second fastest growing economy, that they're improving economic freedom, that they're becoming investment grade. So certainly the multiple re-rating. But we're also positioning for the earnings growth. Um, my favorite statistic right now, I think, captures both of those. The Greek stock market, we were talking about this over breakfast, the Greek stock market is up nearly 60% in the last 12 months, and it's still only seven and a half times earnings. Right? So uh, the S&P, I don't know where is it trading, almost three times higher than that. And the, all of that return, almost all of that return in the last 12 months has been earnings growth. About 50% earnings growth, 60% equity return, so very little multiple expansion that's that's evinced by the seven and a half times earnings. So where can Greece go from, you know, go from here? I think if you look at, I think if you look at uh, the developed market economies, the investment grade economies like Germany and France, and consider that maybe Greece's multiple could start to move in that direction towards 12, 13 times earnings from the seven and a half earnings level of the MSCI Greece index. There's still a lot of opportunity on the table for valuation expansion and continued earnings growth because the country is growing quickly. So, so if you're overweight something significantly, you've got to be underweight something. So what do, what do you underweight and, and why? Well, um, we're underweight, collect, just generally speaking, we're underweight countries where we believe there is a deterioration in the institutions of economic freedom. Countries where we believe the size of government as a percentage of the economy is growing, where the rule of law is worsening. So we've been structurally underweight places 
uh, like South Africa, for example, one of the few countries in the world, maybe the only country in the world right now, who's been able to achieve this remarkable accomplishment of a per capita GDP figure that's actually been going down every year for something like the last decade. So uh, we avoid countries where economic freedom is going down. South Africa is, is certainly one of them. We also try and avoid countries that the institutions are maybe overvalued. I think India is a great example. We own some India, but we are underweight India. We own India because economic freedom, the institutions have been improving under the Modi government, but everybody knows it. It's mm -hmm. 24, it's more expensive than the United States. And so the Indian stock market, I think, is particularly fragile if they don't continue to liberalize their, their economy. Hmm. So uh, the, the, we discussed the U.S. Uh, downgrade of the U.S. Treasury debt from by Fitch from AAA to to AA. Uh, I made the somewhat simplistic argument that a monetary sovereign, a, a government that prints its own currency, cannot default on its own debt. In other words, when Greece was having problems in uh, you know, the European debt crisis 2011-12, it was because it couldn't print the EC, uh, um, the the euro. The European right. Central Bank prints printed the euro, whereas the Federal Reserve, the U.S. government, does print the dollar. After I, I, you know, made this point in public, you, you know, very politely pulled me aside and said, "Jack, you know, it's an interesting point, but technically, there have been some times where monetary sovereigns have defaulted." So, can you uh, add that nuance to us for us? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. I think, I think, I think your general assumption is correct. Countries that can print currency to pay their currency denominated bonds are likely to do that. That's the base case. But there are countries in emerging markets who have defaulted on their local currency bonds for for whatever reason. Uh, sometimes it relates to who owns those bonds. If those local bonds are disproportionately or uh, in, in some large measure owned by foreign investors, countries are sometimes more willing to default on those foreign investors than if those local bonds are collectively held by local institutions and local voters. So sometimes it's the ownership makeup that, that comes about. There's other circumstances uh, in, in history where uh, the leadership of a country changes and they don't like the debt that they've inherited from the previous government and so they, they, they restructure things. So base case, yeah, unlikely. Most likely is to monetize your local debt by printing printing money, but it can it can happen and emerging markets give us those lessons. What I worry about is that as the, the more and more we discuss the, the fiscal trajectory of the United States and the monetary policy of the United States, the more and more we're using emerging markets as an example to refer to, to which to refer. And I don't think that's very encouraging when we consider the outlook for the United States. Wow. So, Marshall, I've heard people, uh, you know, macroeconomic strategy make that point about the U.S. is behaving like an emerging market. But coming from you know, your in the emerging market world, I take that very seriously because I mean the U.S. is very different, right? It's the, it's the monetary you know, uh, global reserve asset. There is a, is a bid for dollars. Do you think? Can you envision a scenario you know in the near near, near future where the U.S. actually does have issues of an emerging market uh, a debt crisis where it has to you know drastically reduce expenditure, runaway inflation? Uh, I think that's very unlikely. In yeah. the near I think that's very unlikely in the near term, and possibly unlikely in my in, in in my career. What I worry about is the direction of change, the direction of change in fiscal policy and the uh, monetary policy adventurism of the Federal Reserve. 
is in a negative direction. And that will slowly accrue. One of the things we've talked about, uh, David Kotak brought up, did some really interesting analysis, is whether or not CDS pricing on U.S. Treasury has taken a structurally a structural move upwards as we see fiscal deteriorate and more budget debates happening. So uh, I, I wouldn't be worried in much way, shape, or form about any type of apocalyptic event or a hyperinflation or such. What I would be worried about is a slow deterioration in the institutions of sound monetary policy or the size of government in the United States, meaning a lack of fiscal discipline that could then slowly raise the cost of capital on all assets in the United States. Thank you. Marshall, my, my final question is, is about China. What is your outlook there and why uh, on the equity market, obviously very tied to uh, the, the, the economy, earnings and regulation, uh, is there going to be some Chinese stimulus as well as on the bond front? I mean, what are Chinese interest rates now? 2%, 3%? Not very attractive with U.S. Treasuries at 5.5%. But so maybe take the equities first and then bonds. Well, um, so China is, is, is certainly dealing with a misallocation of, of capital. I think the leadership there acknowledges it around the housing and property market. Uh, the, the, the executive leadership there has said repeatedly now that housing is for living. Uh, this is an indication that they recognize the misallocation of capital and housing, and they have been looking for an orderly way to address that. Um, the figures we see as, as late as uh, this month uh, or the previous month su suggest the housing market very much is in a correction. We wouldn't expect any type of, of uh, deep stimulus because they do want it to correct. Um, same thing on the monetary policy side. We don't see a whole lot of dramatic uh, activity there with respect to stimulating the economy, again, because they're looking to reduce some of this misallocation of capital. So I think there's a fairly, uh, a fairly well-acknowledged understanding of what the imbalances are in China and that the policymakers are doing their best for a modest, uh, orderly transition. Now, one thing that may prevent any type of disorderly transition is that their capital account is closed, right? So it, it's hard to see a disorderly transition, but it is reasonably easy to see, I would say, years and years of mediocre economic results as this transition, this uh, improved allocation of capital uh, happens, if it, if it does. That said, assets on the equity side are remarkably inexpensive. I think the assets do not incorporate any type of call option premium that you could see a liberalization of the economic institutions, a, you know, a movement towards improving the rule of law, improving the bankruptcy system, uh, making the regulatory environment more efficient, which we know relate to excess returns and improve equity valuations. So right now, the Chinese market, equity market, looks to us as though it's pricing like a regulated utility mm -hmm. without any opportunity to return to the economic liberalization that we've seen before. So I think that's what might catch investors off guard. It did when zero COVID ended, right? When zero COVID was removed, H shares went up almost 50% like that. All you needed is one change in an economic institution, the, the liberty, the freedom of human movement, when that happened, assets became more valuable. And that's what I think I think might catch investors off guard because the market is so, so inexpensive. On the fixed income side, um, you know, again, we would focus more on the, 
the direction of rates, I, 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 rates probably have to come down here because the economy is slow. So if you have an orthodox policy response, you'll have rates come down. But I think they want to be very careful to not re-stimulate the property market. Right? So uh, the magnitude of the change might be somewhat, somewhat moderate. Well, thank you, Marshall. Uh, thank, a big thank you to Camp Kotak and uh, David Kotak for letting me in here, uh, meet people like Marshall, and uh, you know, so our audience can, can see us here. And uh, Marshall, final question, how can they get in touch with your team if they want to learn uh, more about what you do? Well, um, the Google, Google, the Professor Google, uh, yeah. Google, Marshall Stocker, the Morgan Stanley Emerging Markets team. Uh, we, we were part of Eaton Vance yeah. and, and just acquired by Morgan Stanley. So that's probably the best way. There's, there's plenty of ways. Are you to still using the Eaton Vance name or no? We do use the Eaton okay, okay. Vance name, yes, particularly in the United States marketplace. Yes. However, Morgan Stanley is a global brand with huge brand equity. And so as Eaton Vance becomes exposed to the global marketplace as a result of the transaction, the Morgan Stanley name is uh, a very, a very powerful brand. Definitely. Marshall, thanks so much. Should we have, should yes. we have lunch? Jack, let's, let's, let's have do some it. chowder. Let's do it.